Today, we are looking at the book of Romans, and uh, we have, have made it to some really practical sections in Romans. For 11 chapters, Paul has set the foundations of what the gospel is. He has, has gone through the gospel and how uh, we are condemned, but we're saved by grace through faith, and that we're given the Holy Spirit to help sanctify us, and we can count on God to fulfill his promises. Then in chapter 12, he makes this turn, and he said, based on the mercies of God that I've just described in the gospel, present yourself to God. And it gets very practical about how to live your life in this world in which we live. And so we're in this practical, I would say, hard-hitting section of Romans. And, and as we get there, one of the things that's going to happen today is you're going to see that the, the passage tells you to wake up. Um, here's a summary of what the passage is going to say. We're looking at Romans 13, 8 through 14, and, and it basically just says this, love one another. That fulfills the law, and wake up, because the time's growing short. The Lord's going to come back, so become like Christ, who's the perfect example of love. That's the flow of what we're going to see. Um, it's time for us to get serious about applying this. Um, and I'm going to talk about C.S. Lewis quite a bit in the message today, but I'm going to start with one of my favorite C.S. Lewis's quote, C.S. Lewis quotes that I really hate. Um, I, I, it's so well said, but it's so convicting. Here's, here's what C.S. Lewis said in a letter he wrote to a friend of his, Arthur Greaves. He said, we read of spiritual efforts, and our imagination makes us believe that because we enjoy the idea of doing them, we have done them. I am appalled to see how much of the change which I thought I had undergone lately was only imaginary. The real work seems still to be done. Um, just because we enjoy, oh, that sounds good. And, and sometimes we think we have changed. I, I find myself in this situation frequently. I think I've changed, and then all of a sudden I kind of see what I'm doing, and I go, I haven't changed a bit. Lewis goes on to say, in a way that makes it even worse, it is so fatally easy to confuse an aesthetic appreciation of the spiritual life with the life itself, to dream that you have waked, washed, and dressed, and then to find yourself still in bed. It's so easy to, to think, I, I enjoy the messages, I enjoy reading my Bible, I enjoy the challenges, but just because you enjoy them and you have an appreciation for them and you could put them in a chart doesn't mean that you've actually done anything about it. And often, we find ourselves still in bed. Today's message is going to tell us, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up, and it's actually a pretty simple wake up. It is wake up, love one another, and become like Christ. That, that's what he's going to say here. Um, so kind of, again, the flow is love one another. That fulfills the law. So wake up, time's running out look like Christ. Let me just read the passage to you. Here's what it says. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night's almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's get rid of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Love one another. It fulfills the law. (laughs) Time's running out, so act like Christ. Um, Paul's being very practical in this section from Romans 12 through 13. Um, he said all the doctrine. Now he's getting into a series of relationships that we have covered. Uh, your relationship to God, your relationship to yourself, once you're in proper relationship with God, that kind of orients you to you. Then how you relate to one another and how you relate to enemies, how you relate to the government we saw last week. And now kind of the summary that pulls it all back together. And what he's saying here is, in relationship to God, consecrate yourself to him. Make yourself a living sacrifice. Renew your mind all the time being this living sacrifice. And, and when you have that orientation, then you can be humble about yourself, not think you're all that in a bag of chips and not think that you're um, worthless. Have a, have a proper understanding of your value to the community. And then when you understand that you're valuable, then you go, and, and so I'm going to love people around me and my enemies, not just the people I like, but my enemies, I'm going to serve them. Um, and as I think about the government, I submit to that. And his summary of it is, live like Christ. Um, So let's start off with the principle. The the principle is really simple. Loving others is the single most important obligation for all believers. Um, It's the summary of everything. Um, He's going to use three words for this summary, three different Greek words for how how love summarizes everything. Um, He starts off this way. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, a lot of people look at this verse and they, they kind of separate it out and they say it's, it's owe nothing to anyone. And then they go into an, an expose of debt and how debt is evil and debt is wrong. Debt is dangerous. Let me tell you, scripture says debt is dangerous, but it doesn't say it's a sin. In fact, the scriptures um, give you how you should manage debt and what you should do about debt. It gives principles for, for, for debt. Um, but the point here is to contrast being in debt to loving one another and saying love is the real debt you you have and that you owe. But let me say some things about the stewardship of your money and your time. Um, Here at Fellowship, we we have what we talk about as stewardship values. Um, It's been a long time since I've done an entire series on this. I've summarized it from time to time. This is just another summary. But stewardship is more than just whether you're giving your offerings to the church. Stewardship is really the stewarding of your entire life. You're, you're managing your life. It's not your own, it's his. How are you managing it? And, and to be a good steward, Scripture reveals that you'll be a hard worker. You'll be a person that, that people can count on to get your work done. You do what you're supposed to do. You do it in a timely manner. You do it with a good attitude. You're a hard worker. You're a prudent manager of your resources, of your time, of your home, of your car. Of um, uh, you, you, you manage everything in a prudent way. You are cautious in debt um, because debt can enslave you. Debt can, can keep you from being free to be a generous giver or a wise investor. So be cautious in your debt. Uh, be a wise investor of your time. What are you putting your time into? What are you putting your money into? What are you using your resources for? And then finally, being a generous giver. All of this is, is wrapped up in what it means to be a steward. So rather than saying stewardship is don't go into debt and give big offerings to the church. Stewardship is way bigger than that. It's about a whole approach to your life not being yours, 
but your life being God's and how you're managing your whole life. And the reality is there are some other debts that we have. Just in Romans, um, we have a debt to share the gospel, Romans chapter 1. We are obligated to share the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks. There's an obligation we have. It's been freely given to us. We should freely give it to other people. Romans 8 tells us we have an obligation to live by the Holy Spirit. God gifted us with the Holy Spirit. When Christ ascended, one of the victorious gifts of his ascension was to bless us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so since he's gifted us with that, we're obligated to utilize the Spirit to to assist us in living a life that pleases the Lord. Last week we saw we have an obligation to pay our taxes. And today the obligation we're going to see is to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone. And again, the thing is not about debt. It's accept, and here's the big point, love one another. And and this is the summary of the law. It's the summary of, of how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live like God who is love. And the greatest expression of God's love is in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect person who loved us while we were still his enemies, which is what love really is all about. Um, And so he's going to support this principle of saying love one another by telling us it's the motivation and the expression of the entire law. You take the whole law, boil it all down, you can summarize everything of how we relate to everyone else in our life. It's love them. Um. It's the, it's the motivation. Because we've been loved, we love others. And it's the expression of, of how we live a life that is pleasing to God. John Stott says this. Three times in these verses, the apostle writes of the need to love our neighbor. And he's alluding to Leviticus 19.18. We're going to go back to that. This love your neighbor is, is Leviticus 19. Indeed, he makes three affirmations about neighbor love. I like just the phrase neighbor love. It's an unpaid debt, it's the fulfillment of the law, and it does no harm to your neighbor. Um, It's about how you relate to other people, and it's an obligation. Um, And and, and it's it's blessing them rather than using them. That's what love really is. So let me go back. Here's how he says it. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is the first of three words he's going to use for, for what it means to fulfill the law. When, if you're going to try to fulfill the law, love does it. And, and there's three different ways, lenses in which he looks at that. Um, and, and here, he's using the word for, for another, which is another like you. Okay, so when, when you love somebody like you, you love your neighbor, you love someone like you, you're fulfilling the law. And the idea of the fulfilling here. Um, it's a Greek word that's in a, in a perfect tense. And in Greek, the perfect means something that's completed that has ongoing effects. Okay, so you, you basically say, I, I want to live the way God wants me to live. And there's some rules and regulations, but you kind of completely get to it when you say, I'm going to love. And when you love, it kind of blasts you into the future. Now that you're deciding to love, it has ongoing effects into the future. That's what love does. It fulfills the law in that it's, it, it allows you to say, here's this one thing that make, when I make the decision to do this, it, it results in behavior that changes in the future. And it doesn't matter which law you're talking about here. He says, for the commandments, and he's p- picking from the second half of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
or any other commandment you can come up with, they're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he uses a different word to sum it up. Um, it's a different Greek word, and it's, it's the idea of this elegant summary that, that pulls it all together. Um, it's, it's when you when you finish a puzzle and the, the last couple pieces of the puzzle go together and you go, ah, oh, I got it. Um, it's it's um, pulling all the pieces of a novel together. I've read a couple of novels that have been this way where you're reading through the novel and, and as you're reading through it, um, the plot is kind of changing. You're wondering what's really going on and you're getting to the end and there's all kinds of loose strings attached. One particular novel that I read, I remember my heart just racing on literally the last two pages of the novel as every single part of 500 pages that preceded it all came together. Bam! Oh, that's it! Love is... That's it! I've been... What's going on here? What's going on here? It's love! Love one another. It, it sums it all up. And, and all of this comes from Leviticus 19. And, I mean, we spent 26 messages in Leviticus. I'm so glad that I laid the foundation for Romans by doing that and teaching through Daniel and all these other places. Um, but Leviticus 19 is the center. If you'll remember, Leviticus starts off with these five sacrifices that they make, and all those sacrifices are pictures that point to Christ. Um, then it initiates the priesthood, uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and then it goes through some regulations for what's clean and what's unclean, what's normal, what's not normal, and how you dedicate yourself to the Lord. And then he goes through at the end of the festivals that uh, the Israelites would go through and how all those festivals uh, point to, to Jesus. The, the spring festival and the, fall, and the summer festival, um, Passover and Pentecost, have already been fulfilled uh, in Christ. The fall festival, um, which is the Day of Atonement, that's, that's yet to be fulfilled when sin is fully sent out of the camp. Leviticus presents all of this, but in Leviticus 19, we have this command, and it's really in the center of it all. Um, Derek Tidbull, when we were talking through Leviticus, he said this, By any measure, Leviticus 19 is one of the world's greatest ethical charters. Those who question the value of the rest of Leviticus see value here. At least in Leviticus 19, you kind of go, oh, this is practical. Now, I think the whole thing is practical because all these beautiful pictures that point to Christ. Alan Ross says this, The chapter provides a rapid panoramic tour of what it means to be holy. And at the core, at the center of Leviticus 19, is this command to love one another. Um, here's, a, here's an outline that we looked at when we went through Leviticus 19. The letter of the law if you're just going to boil it down to the letter, is love the Lord and love your neighbor. Half, first half is love the Lord, then love your neighbor. Then he gets into the spirit. How does that play itself out? Well, make distinctions like God does. Uh, make clear distinctions about what's right and what's wrong. And then he concludes again with love your neighbor, and here's practically how you do that. So since this idea of love is so important um, because it fulfills the whole law, it's the piece of the puzzle that brings it all together. And you go, but there it is. We need to talk about love for a minute. Love in the Old Testament, love in the New Testament, okay? Um, love. The, the, the Hebrew word for love is ahav. Um, and, and the word's more than just sentimentality and attraction. It's not romantic love. Um, this love means to choose to enter into a covenant relationship and remain faithful to that relationship. The attraction does not motivate the love. The love motivates the attraction. 
God loves us, not because he's attracted to us. We are sinners. We are corrupt. We are um, fleshly. The Old Testament word basar, we're weak and, and stained. We are New Testament word fleshly sarks. We're corrupted. He's not attracted to us. But he chooses to love us because, not because of our attraction, but because he chooses to love us, and that makes us attractive. Um, One commentator says, Love is not caused by any worth or attractiveness in its object, but rather creates worth in its object. When you choose to love, then they become attractive. By the way, this is very hard for our society to, to deal with because for the last 200 years, we have lived by this rule. Marry the person and love the person that you, uh, no, marry the person that you love. If you, if, you, if you are attracted to them and you love them, then marry them. Well, until about 200 years ago, and still in many parts of the world, you don't, um, you don't get to choose who you marry. M- marriages are arranged. And in a culture, like in biblical times, when marriages are arranged, you don't marry the person you love. You love the person you marry. And that's, that's what happens with, with real love. You marry the person, you're in that relationship, and, and the choice to love is the choice to say, now I'm attracted. Um, and it's the choice that once you do love, they become way more attractive. Um, I love my wife so much more now than I did 35 years ago when we got married. I love her so much more, and she's way more attractive to me now than when she was um, 25, and she's 60, and I think she's gorgeous. Um, I, I have no idea if she's aged or not, because, I'm, because I love her, she's attractive. Um, love in the Old Testament is this idea of God choosing to get into relationship with you. It's the choice to be in relationship. It's, it's, it's his election of us to be his children. Now, in the Old Testament, there's another word that takes over that once you're in relationship, it's no longer this word ahav. It's a word chesed. And chesed is once you're in relationship, God is faithful, loyal. It's his loyal love, his loving kindness. And, and, and in the Old Testament, there's two different words. God None of them are because we're worthy. I mean, before we're in relationship with him, we're not worthy. And even when we get into relationship with him, we're not very worthy. But, but God, he loves us, ahav. And then once we're in relationship, he's faithful to us to faithfully love us, chesed. One of the problems is once you get to the New Testament, which is written in a different language, it's written in Greek, they have one word that reflects both of those concepts. In, in Hebrew, there's two one, you're not in relationship, and he loves you and brings you into relationship, and then he is faithful and loves you. But in, in Greek, they had to use a word to describe all of this. And interestingly, they chose a word that in normal Greek, outside the Bible, was kind of bland. Um, it, it's the word you're very familiar with, agape, because the New Testament has made this a very full word. But there are four words in the New Testament um, for, the, for love. The, there's the word storge, which is kind of um, attraction. It's who you go to the, the, you share common interests. It's who you golf with, who you go to the football game with. Then there's phileo, and phileo is brotherly love. It's kind of fidelity and, and commitment because of, of, of family relationships. Then there's eros, which is romantic love. And then there's this word agape. Um, 
outside the Bible, it's a pretty bland word. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so when the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, is translated into Greek, they had to choose a word to talk about God's love. And it's not any of those other words, so they chose one that was kind of bland and infused it with a lot of meaning. Um, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used for God's election, creation of, and acts of saving and redeeming of his people. In the Old Testament, once once God loves you, ahav, then he loves you, hesed. God loves you, now that you're in, then he hesed you. In the Greek New Testament, the same word is used for both ideas. In summary, the biblical writers use this as a description of God's love, which we should emulate, loyalty to others, often unworthy people, regardless of cost. Um, We're supposed to love, long dissertation on one word, love, but it's important if it's the fulfillment of the whole law, I need to explain it to you, that loving others is not being kind to people you like. Loving others is choosing to be in a relationship and faithful to that relationship because you choose to do it. Um, I would back up and say it this way as well. God is love. We, we know that one thing. There's other attributes of God that we can talk about that are implied in the Bible, but 1 John 4, 7 tells us God is love. Well, what is, how does God relate to us? Well, he enters into relationship. Even at great cost to himself, he blesses us. He pursues what's best for us regardless of cost to himself. That's how I often define love. Love is what God does. If God is love, God pursues the best for, of others, for others regardless of cost to self. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, I have a book on my shelf that I pulled off this past week. Uh, this entire book, uh, written by Leon Morris, the entire book, it's called Testaments of Love, is about the words for love in the Bible. Um, and I have highlighted the bejeebers out of this. Um, it was, uh, I've got a four-color highlighting scheme that I don't remember anymore, but I've got four colors of highlighting going on in here with some underlining, too. Um, the, the whole book is on love, okay? I can't, I can't summarize it for you, but um, here's, what, here's one summary of this agape word. Perhaps as good a way as any of grasping the new idea of love the Christians had is to contrast it with the idea conveyed by eros. Eros, romantic love, has two distinct principal characteristics. It is a love of the worthy, and it is a love that desires to possess. Agape is in contrast at both points. It's not a love of the worthy, and it's not a love that desires to possess. On the contrary, it is a love given quite irrespective of merit and a love that seeks to give. Eros, romantic love, is they're attracted to me. I want to have them. Agape love is the exact opposite. It it doesn't mean you only love ugly people, but it, it does mean that's not the basis of the love. The basis of the love is you choose to bless them, and you don't want to possess them and use them. You actually want to bless them. And this is all what Christ was saying. When, when Christ took the Ten Commandments and he boiled it down to, to two, love God and love others, and Paul now boils it down to one, loving others, it's because you can't really love others unless you're, you're loving God. Because when you're in love with God... You have a right relationship with him. And if I'm really in love with God, then I don't need to use you. I'm free to love you. So finally, this expression of love only works when I really do love God. The whole thing, though, is fulfilled in this way. 
Doug Moose says, Paul refers extensively, though implicitly, to Jesus' teaching throughout this part of Romans. Surely he's building his teaching in verses 8 through 10 on Jesus' reduction of the Mosaic law to love God and love for one's neighbor. There are lots of laws, the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarizes it to two. Paul brings it down to one and says, loving others fulfills the whole law because you could never pull that off if you're not loving God. And then he adds right here at the end an an interesting caveat. Um, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You don't use your neighbor. It doesn't do anything wrong to them. It actually blesses them. And this is our third word for filling something up. It fulfills the law. Uh, this word uh, is different than the other two. It, it, ha- it Really, this one is now actually filling something up. Uh, it's like a bucket. It's, it's like if you're trying to fill up all the things God's asking you to do, once the bucket is full, then you look at it and you go, oh, that's love. Once you do everything God wants you to do, you, you're living with integrity. Um, you are a good steward of your resources to bless others. Once you do everything God wants you, it, the fulfillment, the full bucket, when you get it there, it's, it's love. So why should we try to do this? Why should we do this in a world that's oriented the other way? Our, our world is oriented towards whoever's attractive, whoever I can use, that's who I want to enter into relationship with. God doesn't say that. God loves us, and we should love like he loves. Why? Well, he's going to give us the motivation. The day of our final and full salvation is imminent. Um, we, we're closer now than we ever have been. Um, let me go back to... C.S. Lewis for a little bit here. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He um, died on the same day that John Kennedy died in 1963, as well as Aldous Huxley. Those three guys all died. Great atheist, uh, great politician, and great Christian apologist. Um, He died in 1963. So in the 40s and 50s, few years in the 60s, he was writing. Uh, most people are really familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that's part of what he wrote. I think it's great. But he wrote a lot of other stuff. Um, he wrote some journalistic essays that are actually contained, uh, some of them, in this book called Present Concerns. It's just short little journal essays that he wrote um, about a number of dif- different topics. And writing in the 40s and the 50s and some in the 60s, I found it fascinating last night to to pour through some of this and, and see how relevant what he wrote back then is for today. The difference is back then, he says, if you don't get this under control, it's going to go bad. It's gone bad. He writes about equality. And interestingly, he, he says, equality should not be framed as I'm, I'm as good as anybody else. He said equality and a real uh, healthy understanding of equality is we're all equally messed up. Um, he has an article in here. Um, the last one is on sex in literature. Um, and, and his point is, if we don't get this under control, it's going to get out of control and our morals are just going to decline. <laughs> really? Um, gosh, so relevant. But relevant in the sense of, he said it's going to happen. It has now happened. Um, one of the other things people don't know about C.S. Lewis much. They know of him as the Chronicles of Narnia guy and Christian apologist. Um, He wrote a series of uh, space trilogy books. Um, The first one is called Out of the Silent Planet. The second one is Paralandra. Um, Very interesting reads. Um, The last book is very different than those first two. It's called That Hideous Strength. 
And it's, it's Lewis's um, kind of prediction as he muses on what's going to happen in technology. Uh, and, and it's really fascinating. When I read it, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. Um, recently, someone has followed that up and written another book called That Hideous Strength. But listen to the subtitle of this reflection, and he's building on C.S. Lewis. Um, the subtitle is, A Deeper Look at How the West Was Lost. Lewis was saying, we're going to lose it. We've lost it, folks. <laughs> and so I want to say, we're running out of time. Uh, society's coming apart. God may choose to bring another revival. Paul thought Christ could come during his lifetime. I think he could come during our lifetime. I'm not saying it's soon, like three months. I'm saying it could happen today. Um, some of you may be praying, please, before the sermon's over, let come back, Lord Jesus. Um, but, but it could happen at any time. It's imminent. Um, here's what he says. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Time to wake up. Um, John Stott says, Romans 13 began with important teaching about how to be a good citizen and how to be good neighbors, it ends with why we should be. There's no greater incentive to doing these duties than a lively expectation of the Lord's return. He's coming back. It could happen at any time. There, there is nothing on the prophetic timeline that has to happen before the Lord to come back. Now, when he comes back, a lot of things are going to happen. But there's nothing preventing him from coming back today. Paul says it this way, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation's nearer. Now, to understand this big package of salvation, you need to understand how broad our salvation is. Um, salvation is just, I don't go to hell. Sal salvation, biblically defined, includes our justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, no penalty of sin going to hell. But it also includes our sanctification, freedom from the power of sin, and will involve our glorification, freedom from the presence of sin. We saw that and looked at that a lot in um, Romans chapter 8, this glorification that we're looking forward to being free from the, the, the presence of sin because one day it's all going to happen. I, I framed it this way in one series. Um, our conversion, justification, in the past is instantaneous. It establishes our relationship with God. It's a free gift of God, and we are free from the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay for it anymore. But salvation also in, includes us not being saved, but we are now being saved progressively from the power of sin in our life as we maintain fellowship with God and as he's working in us and we're cooperating with that. And it's an ongoing thing. But we're also looking forward to a, a future climactic salvation that results in complete union with God. We receive the rewards for our service and we get a resurrection body that's no longer corrupted with flesh, no longer corrupted with with that um, contaminated, bizarre, weak, um, corrupt part of us. And um, sin, death, Satan, hell, all cast into the lake of fire. That's the culmination of our salvation. And he's saying, this is coming. This is what's coming. This should motivate you because we're getting closer to it every day. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Don't live like you're in the dark anymore. He's going to say what that looks like. Put on the armor of light. The armor, both in Isaiah and in Ephesians, the armor of light is God's characteristics. Put on God-like characteristics, which I think can be summarized in love. Um, 
Tom Schreiner says, he argues that in light of the certainty of the end and the possibility that it could come soon, believers should always be morally ready. It could happen any moment. And do you want to be still in bed when he shows up? He's coming home. And you are supposed to clean the house. Are you still going to be in bed when he shows up? Frank Thielman captures the idea of it well. Uh, Paul has this conclusion in mind here, and he simply reminds his audience that like the dawning of a new day, it's constantly drawing closer. His return is getting closer every day. We don't know when it is. I don't know if it's soon. I know it's imminent. It could happen at any time. So therefore, he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Walk like you're already in that time when you're in perfect union with him. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. And I know those are all ugly words and everybody looks at them and just goes, gross. But I mean, think about it. Orgies and drunkenness. I mean, just sex with anybody you want and... and um, out of control behavior, all kinds of sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling, people taking sides, bickering, divisiveness, jealousy, people wanting things that other people have. Folks, this is the description of our age. We live here. And God's not going to put up with it forever. And, And so he said, love, it fulfills the whole law. Wake up because you're running out of time. And then he's going to end with a personal example. And what this means is God is love. Jesus is the fullest expression of that love in human form. So become like Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Um, it, is, it is put Christ-likeness as your own character here. Um, Abe Curavilla says the Christian responsibility to become Christ-like is not a dissembling but a resembling. A manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ already indwelling the Christian, not a fictional imitation, but a factual actualization, important point, by the power of the Spirit. You can't do this alone. It is becoming like Christ because the Spirit is dwelling within you, and you're submitting to allowing the Spirit to frame you and to form you into a Christ-like person who loves. Again, C.S. Lewis, last time with him. Every Christian has become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming Christian is simply nothing else. We, most of us, became Christians to avoid the penalty of sin. But what comes with that is the indwelling spirit who's trying to conform us to the image of Christ until we're in perfect union with Christ. So here's what he says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's this put off and a put on. You put, you put off the bad stuff, you put on the good stuff. Put off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Put off the debauchery list that he gave, orgies and sexuality, jealousy, factions, and behave decently. Put off the desires of the flesh and put on Christ. Um, This is the, the point of it all. This all wraps it up together. This is, boy, the bucket's full. You look at it, yeah, love. Look like Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel in, in this being empowered by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here in Romans 13.14, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The point there is, if you're going to put on Christ, you're going to love others, you have to do it by the Spirit, not in your own strength. Because it's only the Holy Spirit working within you to transform you that will um, 
really transform you into a person who loves not because of attractiveness and because you want to possess and use them, but the Holy Spirit is the one who motivates you because you were so loved by God when you were unworthy and you were blessed by him that you want to pass that on to someone else. So here's how I would summarize all this. It's time to wake up, folks. Um, God's done all kinds of great things for us. So let's wake up. Let's not still be in bed when he comes back home. Let's not just enjoy um, the idea of doing this. Let's really do it. Love one another well while you still can. It's the single command that summarizes the entire law. Um, It's time to wake up. It's time to stop fooling ourselves. It's time to recognize that um, we're running out of time. We're running out of time to love one another well, to share the gospel, to bless others, to become like Christ. So let's love one, one another well. It fulfills the whole law. It's, it's being like God. It's imitating Christ. It's the whole package. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I thank you for the challenge of your word. I ask that you would um, allow each of us to, um, to as individuals and, and, Father, as the communities in which we live. I pray for the, the Canicut community over there, that they would love well this summer. I pray for us as a church and our families that we would love well, that we would pursue the best for others, even when it's costly to ourselves, that we would stop fooling ourselves into thinking that that things have happened that really haven't happened in our lives and that we would take seriously this command. And Father, I pray that your spirit indwelling within us would empower us to, to look like Jesus. We depend on you for that. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.